So this is a reading from Angelus Arian. She says, in many shamanic societies, if you came to a shaman or a medicine person, or a retreat maybe, complaining of being disheartened, dispirited, or depressed, they would ask you one of four questions. When did you stop dancing? When did you stop singing? When did you stop being enchanted by stories? And when did you stop finding comfort in the sweet territory of silence? When did you stop finding comfort in the sweet territory of silence? Where we stopped dancing, singing, being enchanted by stories, or finding comfort in silence is where we have experienced the loss of soul. Dancing, singing, storytelling, and silence are the four universal salves. So I'm unfortunately going to have to tell you that we're not going to sing or dance too much in this retreat. That comes later. Um, But stories there will be plenty of, and of course there's a lot of silence. So here we are at the end of the first day of being in this territory of silence, this place of refuge. And I've been thinking a little bit about that instruction which I gave you either this morning or last night, I don't remember which, and talking a little bit about remembering to let the natural world be your teacher. And was recalling that I've had actually now, because of something that just happened in August, three experiences of teaching retreats in the very close vicinity of very active forest fires. None of them here, fortunately. But one at Mount Madonna down in Watsonville some years ago, and then one actually with Bob and Marcy at Land of Medicine Buddha um, in Soquel in the Santa Cruz fires just a year ago. And then most recently at a retreat that I teach every year um, in, the, in Boulder Creek where there was quite a large fire in August. And of course it's pretty interesting to be that close to that kind of activity in the natural world and One of the things I remembered about the Mount Madonna retreat was that um, it was a very serious fire and we were, we had our bags packed, we were ready to go. And they were, it's a residential community and they were running around chopping down brush and trees in the vicinity of buildings trying to save their center. And we were a small retreat, there were maybe a dozen of us. And they, I said, you know, would it be better if we left? And they said, oh no, we, we want you. Because there was that sense that the retreat created the center of silence with all of this activity going on around us and ash raining down from the sky. The, the center was also the California Department of Forestry staging um, place for the fire too. So it was just lots of activity going on. And then this sitting and walking and sitting and walking just like you're doing here today. And 
Um, so at that, and thinking of, you know, just the teaching of the power of silence and the power of the natural world and the power of fires. And thinking a little bit about, you know, here you are, you've come to this retreat and it was hot today, so it might have felt a little fiery to you at, at different points, although it does get even hotter here often. Um, but if the outside heat wasn't enough, there probably was a fair amount of heat from your own mind and heart with all of the things that you brought to the retreat with you, you know, the various forms of physical suffering, and <coughs> mental suffering, and emotional suffering that often show themselves or begin to show themselves at the first of the retreat. And so here you are, you know, the fires are raging everywhere. So there's a story in the Buddhist world Um, It comes from the Jataka tales, which are the stories of the many lives of the Buddha before he was the Buddha. So you could think of these as being sort of training lives, you know, where you learn a thing or two and then you're a bit readier to be a Buddha. And in this particular lifetime, the Buddha was a little parrot. And uh, you might not have thought of that as a training life, but it was. And there was a forest fire. And so the parrot was flying over the forest and he noticed the flames and the smoke. And then he noticed that there were all of these animals who were in terrible distress because they were in danger of being burned by the fire. And and his heart just opened, you know, what to do for these creatures who were his friends, you know, and the deer and the fox and the squirrels were running around and they were quite frantic. And so he flew around, he flew around trying to figure out what to do. And finally he spotted, you know, a river in the distance. And he thought, okay, I'm just going to do what I can. And he went and he dove into the river and he got his wings all wet. And then he flew over the flames and he flapped his wings really hard. And he dripped a little bit of water on the flames. And, you know, they sizzled a little bit. And then he went back and he dove in again. And so while here he was, you know, diving and flapping and diving and flapping, and the fire was raging, and, you know, there was this big eagle who flew by, and he said, what are you doing? This is really stupid. Are you thinking you can put this fire out? And the parrot said, it's all I can think of to do. It's all I can do. I'm just going to do the best I can. And he kept diving and flapping. And the eagle would fly by and sneer at him. You know, it's a really stupid waste of effort. And at that point, as often happens in these tales, some of the gods in the heavenly realms looked down and they saw this happening. And one of them was so touched by the great heart of the little parrot that he began to weep. And of course, when he, or maybe she began to weep, then the tears fell and created rain and the fire was put out. So, here you are at your retreat and you have the raging fires. And what are you going to do, you know? And really, in some sense, the work of the retreat is to do what you can do, whatever that means. And it might not seem like much, you know, it might seem like, okay, I'll just follow the instructions. I don't get it. My body hurts. My mind is a mess. But she says to sit and follow the breath, so I'll do what I can. Or they're telling me to go walk now, so I'll do that. Or Marcy's giving us Qigong instructions, and 
I don't know about this Qigong, but, you know, I'll do it. And so you do what you can, you know, one moment after another, even if it doesn't seem like much, and certainly even if it's not perfect. So when the fires are raging, we all need places of refuge. You know, we need refuge from the many storms and events of our lives. And certainly our world these days is just filled with difficulty. It's not an easy world to be in right now. There's a lot of conflict and there's wars and there's Iraq and Afghanistan and, you know, Iran and what are we going to do? And there's economic crises and people, some of you here I know, have lost jobs. There's all of the questions about the environment and global warming and you know, where are we even going to have a world? Who knows? So having some place and time of refuge becomes really important. And if all of those big kinds of things weren't really difficult enough, we also inhabit a pretty insane and constantly harried and hurried culture that's bent every one of us on fitting more into every moment and every space. So it's very, very crazy out there. So here's another refuge story from nature. I mentioned last night that I spend um, a chunk of my life hoping to spend more of it on the big island of Hawaii. And um, some friends of mine live over near Kona some of the time. And I went over to visit once and... um, my friend said, you know, I want you to come and see this wonderful thing on the beach at sunset. So, um, for those of you who know the big island, we were in Puaco. And um, so she took us down to the ocean to an area that was quite rocky, that was quite rocky, and where there are tide pools, big tide pools. And she said, now stand here and watch and see what happens. So as we stood there and watched pretty soon, the sea turtle came swimming in, and then a second one, and then a third one, and then a tenth one, and a twelfth one. And pretty soon the sea turtles were stacking up, you know, like that. It was amazing. It was so wonderful to watch these, you know, huge, big creatures coming in, the honu. And she said they come in every night. And they come in to feed because there's little seaweeds there that they like. And they also come in because it's safe and the sharks can't get them there and they can rest in these pools. So you're kind of like the Hono, right? Here you are. You're new to come. And, and you know, we came, last night we took refuge, right? We took refuge in the Buddha and in the Dharma and in the Sangha. And for some of you, maybe it was the first time ever that you've ever taken refuge and you haven't thought about it much before. And some of you have sat many, many retreats and you come over and over again and over and over again we chant the refuge chant. And Spirit Rock and the you know hundreds of centers like this, either Buddhist or not, have that sense of a place of refuge. And so we come here, every one of you came here to wake up one way or another, that was your intention, I think, to learn 
as deeply as you can some deep truths about being and life, to be in a community of people who are doing the same thing, who are smart enough to do what you're doing, which is really wonderful, and to rest and to heal. And to find refuge in this particular retreat, even in our very own bodies, to really begin to understand the mindfulness of the body as a very powerful refuge. And, you know, I looked over the interview sheets today, and so many of you mentioned this in your, on your interview sheets, as this is what you were really wanting to do. And for those of you who come over and over, and the rest of you whom I hope will come over and over, you know, in the beginning, as I came over and over to retreat after retreat, there were times when I would sort of scratch my head and go, why am I doing this? You know, what, what is this about? You know, I wasn't feeling terribly enlightened, but, you know, there seemed to be something that was good that was happening. And, and my friend Sylvia Borstein likes to say, you know, there are these... There's this teaching about the noble truths, about the, the, the suffering and the cause of it. And then the third truth is, you know, there can be a complete end of suffering. And she likes to say, well, there's a third and a half noble truth. And that is, if you don't get to a complete end of suffering, at least there's less. And I think, actually, that's the one. That's the one that many of us come to know, is that we haven't yet come to a complete ending of suffering. But we find in this simple practice and in these teachings that it opens the heart and softens the mind and we become a little more aware of how we're being in the world and there's less suffering. There's less suffering. I don't think I'd be teaching this if I thought that weren't true. So that's probably why you're here. You came here at least suspecting, if you didn't know, that this might be a place that would be safe And it would be a place where you could lessen your suffering. So we're going to have lots of stories tonight, actually. So here's a Zen story. comes from the Zen koan tradition. So there was a monk who was sweeping the grounds. Out there, kind of like out on the patio, sweeping, sweeping. And another monk came along, and he just shook his head, and he said... Too busy. Too busy. And the first monk said, You should know there's one who is not busy. And the second monk said, If so, then there is a second moon. And the first monk held up the broom, you know. And he said, Which moon is this? So this is one of those wonderful Zen stories. You, know, you can chew on it for hours. What are they talking about? So you can play with it if you want. But I want to look at, you know, what is this, what is the notion of one who is not busy? You know? I mean, is there anybody in this room who's not busy in your everyday life? You know, most of us are so incredibly busy. And so what is this to that there might be a possibility of not being busy? And and how could it possibly be the that the broom itself, the the instrument of busyness has what does this have to do? With busyness, what does this possibly mean? About a year ago, maybe two now, somebody said to me, someone who was um, getting involved in our community in Santa Cruz, and she said, I'm not busy, and I intend to stay that way. And, you know, I was floored. 
I don't, I, nobody had ever said anything to me like that. I didn't, couldn't even imagine that somebody would say such a thing. And I was very impressed, you know, that she was really clear that she was not going to get busy. And likewise, when I first heard this, this Zen story, was actually, I heard the story because it, a day long here at Spirit Rock was taught around it um, by a friend of mine. And I thought, the one who is not busy, what a wonderful title. I was in really intrigued with the title. How? What would it be like not to be busy and, and not to hold oneself as busy? And is it really possible? And, you know, my Google calendar sends me my agenda for the day every day. You know, shows up in my email and you know our iPhones and PDAs and everything else kind of keep us informed of what we have to do and. And, you know, my grandkids have schedules and play dates. And, I mean, there's hardly ever a lost afternoon where they just get to kind of sit under a tree someplace and build houses of stones and that kind of thing. We've really become a culture of human doings and not human beings. And the busyness may be a really good defense. You know, often it is a defense of one sort or another. But it's not a refuge, is it? not a refuge at all. So here, we've stopped. You might have noticed. You may still be feeling the momentum of the busyness a bit. But we have stopped. And you've let go. It's an enormous renunciation. You know, I, can't, I think we can't emphasize it enough how much you let go of to come here. You let go of you know, your favorite pillow and your bed and your own particular sheets and your the food the way you like it and talking and your friends and your work and your books and your dog and your cat and your partners and your children and all of those things. We've let go of them in order to be here and to move fairly slowly and to sit and to walk and to sit and to walk and to sit and to walk and do some qigong here and there and eat some nice food. But it's pretty simple here and pretty slowed down. And we knew, each one of you knew, that it was a good idea. It was, and, and, and again, some of you mentioned that. I'm thinking as I'm saying that. Some of you mentioned, you know, I knew it was time to come and be on a retreat and to enter this territory of silence. So today you've spent several hours sitting in here with your eyes closed and then you've walked kind of slowly back and forth out there and it's pretty strange looking if you look around and think about it. You know, all these people walking back and forth. There's a story from IMS, which is the big meditation center on the East Coast that one day in the early years of having retreats there, People were out in front of the center doing very slow walking back and forth. And the mailman came. And he walked into the office with his big stack of mail. And he said, it's so sad. It's so sad. Those poor people. What's wrong? (laughs) So, you know, it does look a little strange. And the instructions today of giving your attention to the breath are just aiding us. Somebody wrote me a question like, 
know, it's the nature of the mind to be busy, which it is. So how come we're trying to stop it? And actually, the truth is, we're not really trying to stop it. We're just trying to slow you down a little bit. You can't completely stop the mind. It will stop on its own for a while, but then it comes back in again, you know. That's the nature of the mind. But it's very important to slow it down enough so you can begin to understand it and see what's happening. And so these very simple instructions, give your attention to the breath, follow the breath, notice it, come back every time that you wander off. I mean, we didn't say much more than that to you today. And that's to help you to begin to just be here, doing nothing for a while. Just here. Just here. And you've probably noticed that doing that is not so easy. Isn't that interesting? It's so simple. But it's not very easy. One person who sits with us in Santa Cruz once decided, she's a young mom, and she decided that when she got home every day, she wasn't going to meditate. She was going to take 15 minutes and do nothing. She said it was remarkably difficult to do nothing. She wasn't even going to meditate. She was really going to do nothing. And everything in her that wanted to do something immediately stepped into the foreground. You know, well, I could just this or I could just that. You know, those kinds of things. It's not so easy. The natural world has times of stopping. You know, the, the night gets dark. And the further out in the country you are, the lucky you are, because then it gets really, really dark, you know. And when it's really, really dark, like here, you can actually see the stars. And I actually noticed a couple of weeks ago when I was here and the moon was dark, that in fact we could see the Milky Way one night, which you don't get to see very often in the cities anymore. And in areas where winters are cold or wet, then, you know, people go indoors and get quiet and, and um, slow down. And tribes have customs where, you know, for example, women who are menstruating would go off and be by themselves. And, and, you know, yes, you can say this is some kind of discrimination, but you can, you know, many women also came to understand that it was really a time of rest and reflection and being away from men and kids and having a chance to be quiet. So life, you know, used to have a lot more pauses in it than it does now. And now it takes, you know, an accident. You know, you have a, an accident with your car and you're injured and so you have to stop. Or sometimes surgeries or illness will slow us down for a while. Or sometimes you are, in fact, laid off or furloughed and all of a sudden you have an empty space of time that you didn't know that you were going to have. Or someone dies and then there's... <coughs> that period of slowing down and grieving that happens. And these periods actually also create a time of stopping. And um, sometimes they bring us back into our bodies in a way that's very, very rude and unpleasant. And we're forced to stop and take time and to heal. And, you know, we don't always like it. Sometimes we push against it. It seems wrong or bad and... We shouldn't have to, you know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have to stop just because I'm sick or injured. I should be able to keep on going, you know, full tilt. But the Zen story, if you remember the Zen story, 
It points to more than just stopping. It also points toward a shift in insight and understanding. So it's really a question of how do we learn not to be busy even when we're doing a lot? What is this business of there being someone who's not busy or the broom itself not being busy? And I think one of the things it does is it points towards a place of learning um, in our lives about a place of presence and stillness so that we are so totally present that we can do many, many things even as we come from a still place. And T.S. Eliot talks about, in some of his poetry, about the still place where the dance is. So here we're wanting to find this place of presence and safety. And there are three words that I like to work with for finding that. Curiosity, confidence, and contentment. And I just want to add a little footnote that this is not any one of the Buddha's lists. This is the Mary Grace list. Um, So curiosity, confidence, and contentment. Although I think you could probably find similar lists in the Buddha's many, many lists. And so they're really qualities that I'm encouraging you to develop while you're here because I think it will support you in really coming to get acquainted with this resting place and also then being able to carry it out into your life. So curiosity, you know, most children I know, my grandkids, my little, I have two little boys, nine and six, and they are so curious, you know. And the young, the oldest one used to like to, he would roar into the room and he'd put his little hands on his hips and he'd say, what's going on in here? <laughs> so it's a great question. What's going on in here? You know, you could ask it for yourselves at any point in your day. What is going on here? What is this thing that is a breath? What is it? What is this movement that Marcy's having us do? What is this experience standing in front of you that calls itself a deer? And really being curious, you know? Sometimes curiosity is what brings us into practice. You know, might have even brought some of you to this retreat. Huh, been hearing about Vipassana retreats for a long time. You're curious, and here you are, you know? And sometimes as we live out our lives, as time goes on, there's almost a kind of a desperate edge to our curiosity, like, what is going on here? I mean, what is this, you know? I mean, you know, I'm about to be 68 in a couple of weeks. Life is getting short, you know? It's definitely kind of in my face that time is limited. So, you know, what is going on? What's this business of getting here and having a life, and then you get to die. I mean, really, you know, and somebody once said, it's like getting on a cruise ship in order to sail around for a while, and then you sink, you know? (laughs) What's the point, you know? Or maybe you're curious about, why am I never happy? You know, for some of you, that might be true. Why is it that I go around in circles, endless cycles of the same suffering? Why isn't my life working? And so that's what brings you to practice, you know? And you begin, you read a book, you go to a class, you hear a tape or a CD, or you 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 have a friend who talks about the retreat world, and so here you are. 
And so then we tell you, okay, bring your attention to this very moment and be curious. And as the retreat instructions expand, we're going to be particularly curious about this entire experience of the body. Seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and then this particularly weird experience that we call the mind. What is going on here? And to really give your attention to those experiences. So the meditation instructions will expand some so that you can you know, take your attention right into the hearing or the smelling or the body sensation that is going on. To be very interested in this event that we call a body and to be very interested in the mind and heart. Like I said last night, all of the instructions of the, of the Buddha are intended to be for the investigation of your own heart and mind. So he's really inviting us to be curious and to see for ourselves. That's one of the wonderful things about the teachings of the Buddha. The Buddha is not interested and was not interested in telling you something that you had to take on belief. He was very interested in giving you instructions and telling you things that then you were supposed to go check out for yourselves and find out, is this true? And if it isn't true or if it doesn't work for you, then put it aside and don't use it. And if it is true, um, then you might want to use it. And, you know, the only thing you're asked to do is try it out and see, you know, whether it works for you. So what is the nature of my experience? What is it to be human? What is it to have a body? One of my teachers um, said that curiosity, he thought, was about the most valuable spiritual tool that we have. And in the Buddha's lists, you know, the investigation of our experience is one of the ingredients of the enlightened mind. So you can experiment with the breath and the body almost as though you'd never had one before. You know, I invite you to be a space alien who's just been given a human body and you have no idea how it works. And really pay attention and see what what can you find out. So one of the things that we notice is that when we really give our attention to our experience and study it and sit with it, sometimes we suffer less. Bob was talking about that a bit this morning. That there's a way sometimes when the body hurts and we kind of go, oh, there's that pain in my back. And then we get worried about it and scared about it and we contract and tighten up. And, and then the pain, in fact, intensifies. And it's worse than when you started. And sometimes, although not always, because pain is its own thing, But sometimes when we notice, oh, you know, there's that sensation in my back, that pain, and and then you bring your attention to it, and you notice, oh, it's got tightness and knots and needles and burnings, and just that attention begins to soften and create a little space and a little opening. And then, in fact, the body is more relaxed and there's less pain. So it's a pretty interesting thing to begin to see. And so we can, we're training here 
our minds and hearts to meet our experience out of curiosity and not out of reactivity and to meet it with friendliness and interest and not with judgment. And so, as we do that, and in fact, it begins to be a little easier to be present in this body-mind event, then we develop some confidence in our practice. Oh, look, it's working. It's a little like riding a bicycle, you know. All of a sudden you realize you've gotten something and you can do it. So you wouldn't be here if you didn't have some confidence in your practice. There was some, something that you trusted enough to bring you. And so some of you may have the kind of confidence that's inspired by the practice and teachings of others. And some of you may be beginning to have the confidence in your own practice because you've seen that it begins to work. And this is not a problem. It's not egocentric. It's not inflated. It's like having, you know, when your car performs well, you have confidence in your car, right? You trust that your car is going to get you from here to there. If you're walking on one of these trails and you become familiar with it, you have confidence that you will get to where you're expecting to go at the end of the trail. Maybe if you're new to Spirit Rock, you might be out on the trail and not have confidence in the trail because you won't know where it's going. It might take you someplace else, so you might get lost. Or you have confidence in a trusted guide or a teacher who is informative and whose instructions really seem to work for you. So gradually in this practice, we we develop confidence in the Dharma and the teachings and the Buddha himself. You know, there's there's a chant that the monks um, do quite regularly, and it talks about you know the Buddha is my excellent refuge, and unsurpassed is the protection of the Dharma, and that sense of oh, I really know that that this is true, and so like the Honu, like the sea turtles. You know, you keep coming back then because you know that this is a safe place. And what you might begin to sense, if you give it enough attention, are you ready for this? Sitting itself is an enlightened act. Just to know to sit is actually a piece of awakening. Just to know that you need to be quiet, to bring your attention to your experience. That's very important. And you begin to realize that the place of safety in any situation is the place of attention. The place of safety is the place of attention. So unlike those poor sea turtles who have to find the particular tide pool, our refuge in a very real way becomes very portable because it's not anything outside of us. It's actually something that we know to do. So when we meditate, we step into that refuge. We step into, um, in a way, we step into what is sometimes in the Buddhist world called the unconditioned. You could think of it that way. We step into the realm of mystery and not knowing. You could step into, we could say you step into what my friend Angelus Arian would call the shamanic realm. My other friend, John Travis, who teaches here, talks sometimes about refuge in the big, because as we do that, our view begins to get bigger. So I'm going to share with you my favorite 
secret practice these days, speaking of refuge in the big. I've developed the habit in the last year of going every day to the website called the Astronomy Picture of the Day. And if you don't know it, I invite you to Google it and find it after the retreat. And on that website, there are often images, often from places like the Hubble Space Telescope or some of the other really big scopes. And, you know, up will come galaxies and nebulae and these images of hundreds and millions and billions of stars that are millions and billions of light years away. And, you know, you get the idea really quickly that the picture is enormous. It's very, very big. And we are very, very small, infinitesimal. And there's a very real way in which that, you know, stepping into that realm of the big, however you do it, becomes a real refuge because it creates a kind of perspective on our own situation. So it also makes it very clear that we don't know all the answers. We can't possibly know all the answers. And last night we mentioned that wonderful quote from Suzuki Roshi where he invites us to have beginner's mind. He's really inviting us not to know You don't need to know all of the answers to everything. And you can be curious, you can explore whatever your situation is, but you don't have to figure it out. You know, you can just relax into that not knowing. And, you know, there's enough structure here so you can really do that. You've got a schedule, you've got some bells, you pretty much know where to go, and then the rest of it you can just kind of... And really let yourself open to whatever you find in this, in this time of refuge. And as you begin to find that you can rest in that space, that is also part of what brings you confidence in your practice. So when that happens, when you begin to relax, that's the place of contentment where Here you are, you haven't the foggiest notion what it is that a body is, or a breath for that matter. But it seems to be working and it's kind of interesting. And you give it your attention and you're contented. It's really okay not to know. And you're not so busy, you're just still, you're not doing your usual routine. That seems to be pretty good. Lunch might be interesting tomorrow, or it might not but that's okay too. And so there's contentment. And when you get really good at it, you can be home just about anywhere. You know, We can allow our experience to be whatever it is. And it's not easy to do this. You know, Some of us, myself included, tend to be very aversive. You know, there are things we don't like. And so learning to be contented is a really, really powerful practice. So you could practice here at the retreat. You know, you're not going to get the retreat you ordered up. I'm sorry to have to tell you that. But it's true, you're not. You know, you may have thought you were going to get diamond-like 
still radiant mind or maybe you thought you were going to come to the end of all your suffering or at the very least figure out what to do about your boyfriend but you might not you'll just get the retreat that happens and can that be good enough can you be friendly towards the retreat that you've got even if it's not perfect one of the best ways to do that is to is not to have to control it, not to have to have everything be about mine and the way I want it, and to sort of step out of the center of your world for a while. Galway Cannell has a wonderful poem. He says, Whatever what is is, is what I want. Only that, but that. Whatever what is is, is what I want. Only that, but that. So each evening at that fire retreat, we would sit and walk as the planes droned around. And each evening, the Honu come back to their pool to rest and each day the monk sweeps the patio and manages to do his manages to do his work without being busy so the question for us is can we by bringing really careful attention to our own experience and situation you know, can we by giving careful attention to the breath and to the body, you know, can we, in giving our attention to the heart and the mind, find that secure resting place that is not so busy? And can we, in the process of learning how to do that, bring lots of curiosity and confidence and contentment to our time here? So that then, a week from now, when you're back in your busy everyday lives, um, you have some sense of that rhythm of rest and safety and then activity and then rest again. And you, you really will have it in your body, heart, mind complex. So here's a final poem for you for the evening. This is another one from Kabir and he's inviting you to do this exploration right here in your own body and that it will be pretty amazing if you do it. He says, don't go outside your house to see flowers. My friend, don't bother with that excursion. Inside your body there are flowers. One flower has a thousand petals. That will do for a place to sit. Sitting there, you will have a glimpse of beauty inside the body and out of it, before gardens and after gardens. So stay just as you are. No need to change your posture. Let's just breathe together for a moment.
So thank you very much for listening this evening. And we have about 40 minutes, just a little bit more, for a walking practice. Beautiful. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.